Spaceflight's first punk rock star had his first flight 60 years ago this week. So today we're going to be talking about the one and only Gehrman Titov. And to help us do this, we've asked Stephen Walker to join us once again, author of the book Beyond, which came out this year and focuses on the early Russian space program. Please continue to get in touch with your thoughts on what we're up to. We're at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or leave us a review on your podcast platform. And don't forget to hit that share button, it really does help us out. But right now, please enjoy episode 49 of the Space and Things Podcast. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. And welcome to episode 49 of our podcast. Now, we've got loads to get on with today. But to start with, Emily, please tell me about our adventures at Oshkosh. How was it? It looks like you had the best time. Okay. It was freaking incredible. Like, I literally had among the best two days of my life. Like, I hope next year I can go for the whole week because I was only there for two days and I thought I was like, Okay, I could die now. I'm perfectly happy. Like, I, I, oh my God. I've been a little obsessed with the Voyager, the Rutan Voyager, the plane. Yeah. It flew around the globe in 1986, unfueled, or it, it was fueled, but it was unrefueled. They didn't have to refuel it. So I've been obsessed with that story for ages. The museum at Oshkosh, the EAA um, Experimental Aircraft Museum. Is that, is that, is that? Yeah. Experimental, uh, I think it's Experimental Air- Aircraft Association. Right, okay. Um, yeah, they have a museum that has a Voyager, like an exhibit. So I went, you know, I went through this exhibit and I took pictures of everything. I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. It's the Voyager, the plane, you know, I love this, you know. So, you know, I go to bed because I'd been up forever, you know, I'd flown in that day. So that night I go to bed, you know, in my hotel. Next morning I come down because I was doing a panel that night. So I had a, had a driver, ooh, fancy, you know. Ooh. Sorry. Fancy, right? <laughs> so that morning I was in the lobby waiting for my, you know, waiting for my driver and stuff like that, you know, and I was just chilling with like a cup of coffee or something like that, just hanging out. And all of a sudden this older guy, this older gentleman sits across from me and I look up and it's Dick Rutan, the pilot of Voyager. Like I literally turned into like an eight year old pile of mush and I'm like, excuse me, um, are you the Voyager pilot? And he was like, yes. And he was so cool, but he... <laughs> I could tell he was like, this chick is freaking out. Like, cause I literally was like, can I have a picture with you, please? Sir? Like I turned into like a child. So yeah, I pretty much made a, made a turd out of myself in front of Dick Rutan and a, and a best Western just so you know, but he's a wonderful guy. Uh, he does have a book uh, out that I bought and he autographed it. He's very kind and gracious, but I'm still not over this man. Like after meeting the person who did this, I was like, I, I can cure world hunger now. I, I want to dress better and uh, maybe I'll quit carbs. I don't know. <laughs> I, I just want to improve my whole life. So it was seriously, though, um, I did do a space shuttle panel there. And Jim Voss, uh, uh, Steve Lindsay and Paul Dye, who is the longest serving uh, flight director uh, at NASA, uh, they were on the panel and it it didn't go good. It went great. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah, fortunately, a, a video of of. The first half of that has gone up. I don't know if the second half has gone up yet, but I've, I've managed to watch the first half and it did look amazing. I, I loved every minute of it and you did a great job. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's one of seriously, I hope someone at EAA is listening to this because it was right up there. One of my biggest professional honors to do that at the biggest air show in the world. It's just, oh, my God, I'm still freaking out. So it was amazing. <laughs> Best two days of my life. Fantastic. It was amazing. And 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 obviously before we go go on, they've also at the at the museum there, they've got the Joe Engel collection and the Frank Borman collection, right? Which are uh, a pretty special collections. Yeah, there you, you if you can go up to Oshkosh and see it, go see it. I mean, you just have to see it. it it's incredible. Uh, the Borman and the Engel collections. There's stuff in there that I've read about. You got to see it. It's incredible. That that museum is amazing. Like I, I spent really just two days in the museum. It's not as big, but it reminds me sort of like the Air Force Museum in Dayton. You could spend. Yeah. I mean, I could spend weeks in that one. So yeah. it's sort of the same idea where you could just hang out in there for ages and keep finding artifacts. Yeah. It, it's just amazing. I got to go there. Anyway, it's it's great to hear that you had such a good time. I'm really glad you shared that with us. And uh, if anyone hasn't been on Emily's social media, there was plenty of posts about uh, her experience there uh, and some photos from inside the museum. So check them out. And hopefully uh, in the future, we'll do a, a an episode devoted to that museum or some of the things in their collection or a preview of the air show, perhaps. Sounds um, great. But we've got loads to get, get on with. So let's crack on. Well, Dick, I guess I need my sad music for this report. Go ahead. Well, there aren't any more butter cookies, I guess, and uh, I guess by this time tomorrow, it'll be in withdrawal. On August 6, 1961, Gehrman Titov became the fourth person to fly in space on the Vostok 2 mission, spending one day, one hour, and 18 minutes orbiting the Earth. Uh, he broke a lot of records at the time. He spent the most time in space. He um, was the first person to photograph the Earth from space. He was... Uh, the first person to get sick in space. And he, at the time, uh, that record just got broken uh, a few weeks ago. At the time, he was the youngest person at space, a uh, person in space. And that record stood until very recently at uh, age 25. And to talk to us more about Titov and this mission, we're joined once again by Stephen Walker, who released a book earlier this year called Beyond. And while that book predominantly focuses on the mission of Yuri Gagarin early in 1961, it also covers a lot of the early space programs of both the Soviet Union and the US. And when we spoke to him back on episode 32, he let it slip that he had so much to say about Titov. So we asked him right there and then, if he'd come and join us. And I'm sure many of you are very happy about this because that episode was extremely popular with our listeners. We got many great comments about it. In fact, Bruce McCandless said uh, that Stephen Walker is such an engaging storyteller, I suspect he could even make a bus trip to Milton Keynes sound like an adventure. People in England will certainly be aware that that is high praise indeed. Uh, so if you haven't listened to episode 32 yet, perhaps check that out after you listen to this interview because he does end up talking about how he wrote the book and some of his research uh, that he did, which is all really fascinating. Anyway, right now, let's talk about Titov with Stephen Walker. Hello. Let's get started. Uh, so Stephen, welcome back to our show and thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks very much for having me. Yes, thank you. So um, it's the 60th anniversary of Gehrman Titov's flight. So it's only right to give him some uh, airtime, in our opinion. 
Uh, so when you were doing research for Beyond, was there anything that surprised you about Titov? Anything you, you didn't know previously? Well, actually, almost the fact that he actually exists. <laughs> the thing about German Titov, I mean, it literally is that. He is the man that's disappeared. He is the number two. I mean, you know, we think about Buzz Aldrin, for example, and everybody still knows who Buzz Aldrin is, or even though he was the number two after Neil Armstrong on the moon. But when it comes to Gaman Titov, you just draw a blank face from people who, I mean, I, Gagarin is one thing, and a lot of people have forgotten who he is. I hope my book is helping to redress that. But nevertheless, Gaman Titov is the guy people don't know. And yet, as I started to get into the research, what I began to discover was how extraordinary and remarkable, as I'm sure we'll talk about, this young man was, and how remarkable his life and his career actually was. His flight took place, as you say, 60 years ago in August 1961. So we're talking May, June, July, August, four months after Yuri Gagarin. And everything else about his flight was a first. He was the first man to complete more than a single orbit of the Earth. Yuri Gagarin's flight, just to remind listeners, actually was a single orbit. It went once around the world, this capsule, this Vostok 1, with Yuri Gagarin inside it. Went once around, 106 minutes, and he's back on Mother Russian soil again. German Titov takes off on August the 6th, 1961. He launches from the same pad. He launches from the same top-secret Cosmodrome in the Soviet Republic of Kazakhstan. And he does 17 orbits, actually slightly more than 17 orbits. Yuri Gagarin, 108 minutes. German Titov, 25 hours, actually slightly more than 25 hours. The distances traveled, phenomenal. Another first. He travels approximately 700,000 kilometers or well over 400,000 miles. You're talking about a distance which is not quite, but on the way to being all the way to the moon and back again in 1961. He's the first man to use a film camera in space. He films the earth. I mean, it's incredible. They're all taught how to use these film cameras, these 60 millimeter movie cameras, and he films the earth. I've seen some of the original raw footage that he shoots. Gagarin, they did not give him a camera because he had, you know, this is the first one and they just didn't know what else was going to happen. He's the first to sleep in space. He has a real problem sleeping in space because weightlessness creates all its own problems. And actually he has real problems with his arms, which keep kind of lifting up the whole time and floating up into, you know, above his head. Very uncomfortable. He tries to kind of slip them under his harness to see if he can hold them down. But nevertheless, he still wakes up with his hands in the air. He may well have also been the first to faint in space. Uh, there's some debate about whether he suffered from what he certainly did suffer from and was the first man or woman to suffer from space sickness or space adaptation sickness, which is a, a, a well-known phenomenon now with astronauts and cosmonauts who go into space and have to experience weightlessness, which has an impact on the internal balance mechanisms of the ear. He's the first. It was so bad in his case that he, as I said, almost certainly did faint. And he was really quite ill for many of the orbits. So he has a lot of firsts that obviously get forgotten about because next to Gagarin being the first of the first, 
These other successes and triumphs and failures, if you like, are not really talked about. But he is in himself a remarkable guy who did a remarkable thing. And it was a much, much, much more impressive flight, ultimately, even than Yuri Gagarin's is the first flight. So why didn't Titov get that first flight? Well, he had, there was a number of things that were not quite right with Titov in terms of the first <laughs> flight. I mean, this was a huge, huge propaganda exercise. It was which um, ideology, if you like, is the superior ideology in a world that is actually plunged into Cold War between the Soviet Union, the USSR and its satellites and the United States and its allies. So what they needed was not just somebody who could be a good pilot or a good endurer, essentially, because there wasn't much piloting, as we say, going on, of this mission, but somebody who could best represent everything that Soviet Union was. And consider, Yuri Gagarin is the son of a peasant. Titov is the son of a schoolteacher, smacks slightly of the bourgeoisie. It's not quite the same thing as a peasant, you know, in the Soviet <laughs> Union made good. Yuri Gagarin comes from a region west of Moscow that is considered to be sort of the heartland of Russia. Um, where does Titov come from? He comes from Siberia, which is actually quite different. He's 2,000 miles east of Moscow. Is that really the perfect representative of the USSR? And there's another thing that's really important to bear in mind about Titov. Yuri Gagarin has the perfect family setup. He has a little girl aged about two. He's got a little baby daughter who, I mean, it's terribly moving, who has just been born in March 1961 before this flight takes place, which is all very kind of sentimental and it's very familial. Titov has a son who died. Mm. So the son died at the age of a very few months in 1960. This is not a great biography for a Soviet hero. And there was another point to bear in mind as well. His name was a problem. Yuri Gagarin, German or German Titov. I mean, it's actually, we spell it G-H-E-R-M-A-N, but it's still German. And this was just a few years after the end of the Second World War, when hundreds of millions of Russians or Soviet citizens had been killed or wounded in that war, when the Germans had invaded a substantial chunk of the Soviet Union in 1941 in Invasion Barbarossa. So you've got a situation where the first cosmonaut could have had a name which was German, literally German, German <laughs> Titov. So it was, it was, the biography wasn't quite right. So whereas Gagarin had a better biography and the thing about Gagarin that marked him out with Titov, he was very personable. He had this big dazzling smile that he goes on about. Titov was a very handsome guy, very good looking. And as we'll talk about, quite rock starish in some ways. I mean, he was a kind of a sexy, kind of slightly dangerous guy. He was the kind of guy he would take on authority. He was known to speak his mind. He was really bright. And he also had a bit of a tendency to quote classical Russian literature, like Pushkin, for example, at <laughs> inopportune moments, which really pissed off his very proletarian instructors. <laughs> so whereas Gagarin kind of towed the line more. So you've got a guy who's challenging, who's questioning, who's not scared of authority, who's brutally, I mean, sometimes disarmingly, but can be quite brutally and even 
dangerously frank. And that's really a problem. So Yuri Gagarin swims into history as the great representative of everything that the Soviet Union is able to achieve. And Titov, barred by his name, his background, his biography, and his personality, is condemned to being the number two. Wow. Is it considered that, that Titov was actually a better qualified for the job, though? And if you take away the, 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 the things you've just talked about, was he a better pilot, for example, than, than Gagarin? Yeah, I mean, you know, in some ways, that's the, the, the kind of terrible irony at the centre of the story. Unquestionably, he was, and he was known to be so. So, right. for example, Nikolai Kamanin, who was the head of cosmonaut training and also who kept this secret diary, which we use a lot in my book, Beyond, and it, he's a fascinating kind of eyewitness fly on the wall to these events. Nikolai Kamanin actually says in the days before the flight, as the final decision is about to be made, because it's not made until three days before Yuri Gagarin flies, Nikolai Kamanin sits there and writes in his diary, Titov is the stronger of the two. He's the better candidate. Strip all the other crap aside yeah. and you've got the better person to go. And for that very reason, we need to reserve him for the much more difficult second flight, the one that's going to involve many, many more orbits of the Earth, the one where manual control is going to be used, the one where we're going to have film cameras and all the other paraphernalia of a complex, incredibly bold flight. I mean, you know, 25 hours in space. You have to remember that Alan Shepard had managed 15 minutes yeah. and gone up and come down in the Atlantic. And literally three months later, we got a 25-hour flight with a journey of well over 400,000 miles. This is complicated stuff. And you need somebody of great grit and strength and capability and skill and strength to do such a flight. And Titov was that guy. And so they kept him back. He was their number two. He was the guy in, you know, waiting to go on as the reserve and would actually end up winning the match. Mm. That's the guy he is or was. Mm. Um, another thing that uh, I think bears mentioning is Titov was in excellent physical shape. Like, if you see pictures of him from that time, he was really cut. Like, he was, <laughs> he was I'll just be real. He was really handsome. Like, he that was a good looking dude. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. He was really, you know, just chiseled yeah. and stuff. Cool, Emily. <laughs> I know. Woo. He was about my size, like my height. Five foot four. He's a little guy, but he was in really good shape. So that's probably another contributor as to why he flew the more difficult mission, because physically he was in better shape than Gagarin. Not not that the Gar Gagarin was in bad shape or anything, but he was probably more athletic. So that probably made a difference. Yeah, I definitely, they were all fit. I mean, they were chosen as the 20 fittest yeah. men on the oh, planet, yeah. and then they were made to be even fitter. Interesting exactly. enough, Titov rebelled against the fitness regime. He, <laughs> he didn't like fought running. tooth and nail. I mean, you know, they were doing crazy things with these guys. They basically, they were training to be almost athletes. I mean, that's crazy, but that's what they were doing. I think really because their trainers didn't really know what else to do with them. I mean, you mm. know, what are you going to do? They're not flying these things at the beginning of, this is before they knew that they were going to be doing it, right at the beginning when they were selecting them. So the physical fitness regime was brutal. And it started first thing in the morning and it went on and on through the day and it was nonstop. The thing about 
German Titov was that, as I said, he rebelled. And his trainers were trying to get them up. I think it's trampolining. There's a line in my book somewhere where I think Karpov, one of the, uh, basically the head of the cosmonaut training center, actually says, you know, we're getting them up to circus standards on the trampoline, <laughs> which if you think about it, it's absolutely nuts. I mean, you know, Neil Armstrong is almost up to trampoline, circus standards on the trampoline. It's unthinkable. But that's what they were doing. And Titov said, this is crap, this is rubbish. Why are we doing this? This is, what's this got to do with flying in space? And he took on his instructors. His wife said, and she, I interviewed her in Moscow. She's amazing. And I interviewed her and her daughters. And, and it was a little kind of shrine dedicated to German, you know, Titov, her husband. And she was a great character, Tamara. And she said, he never was afraid to speak his mind. He was a very bold guy. When he was a kid, he nearly drowned going skating on a pond in Siberia where the ice got really thin, but he was the one on that ice, you know? He was somebody he would take on authority. He was impulsive. He met his wife, Tamara, when she was a waitress in the staff canteen on the airbase that he was on. And he danced really badly with her. And she said he was a terrible dancer. And within two months, they were married. I mean, it was that fast. She said he never did things slowly. It was, boom, let's do it. Let's get married. And they were married. It was that fast. He was that kind of guy. So he was ready to take on authority. He was quite quick tempered. He would say if something was stupid. All these things made his trainers and instructors slightly scared of him, but they were also terribly impressed with him at the same time. And the physical fitness regime was precisely one of those things. And yet, Emily, as you rightly say, however much he criticized, however much he can't, he did it. And he became incredibly fit. And you do see lots of photographs of him doing weird acrobatic things, upside down through hoops, turning cartwheels. I mean, these guys were incredible. Why, why were they gonna turn cartwheels? They were gonna do it in their spaceship, but nevertheless, He's the guy that comes out on top of that. And he was amazing that way. And to endure a 25 hour, 17 plus orbit flight, you need actually grit and you actually need physical strength as well. Mm. And so he had it in spades. Wow. I could listen to this forever. This is amazing. <laughs> this is amazing. Because I love, I love Titoff. I'm like um, a little. We know. Yes. <laughs> How did you guess? How did you guess? Let's we've touched upon this a, more than a little bit, I think. But let's talk about how Titov was probably the most punk rock of cosmonauts at the mm. time. You, you likened him to a rock star. And mm. let's talk about how he was kind of a rock star of his time. Let's, well, let's get into that. Well, I mean, you know, here's a guy who is <laughs> breaking the rules. OK, so let's talk about some of the ways he broke the rules. I mean, one of the ways he broke the rules actually was before he ever went to space he broke the rules by telling his wife, Tamara, everything that was going on <laughs> when he wasn't supposed to say anything whatsoever. So, you know, Valentina Gagarina, Yuri Gagarin's wife, was a very sensible, quiet, retiring, shy, do-it-by-the-book kind of woman. She really was. I mean, she died, uh, what is it, a year ago now? And she, she played it by the book, you know. She was very, and Gagarin played it by the book too. So Gagarin 
because they were all told not to tell their wives to begin with what they were training for once they'd been selected, or even when they were going through the selection process, what it was they were actually being selected for. Gagarin says nothing to Valentina, his wife. I mean, he's absolutely keeps stum, totally. Titov tells everything. He writes letters which are completely illicit to his wife, saying, oh my God, today they hanged us upside down in one of their medical experiments. He refers to the nurses who are doing all these horrible experiments on them to see whether they're fit enough as the Gestapo. He writes that in his letters. I mean, some of these letters have been published. Some of the letters were given to me to use in the book by Tamara, and they're in the book as well. I mean, oh I have my God. lots more, actually. They're incredible. And what's beautiful about them is they're kind of love letters as well, because Tamara, at the time of when he was being selected, was actually pregnant with the boy, Igor, that would later die a few months later. And Tito was really concerned for her, you know, to make sure that she gets enough rest, that she gets this, she gets that. So he would pepper these lovely letters with all of these allusions to, um, you know, the child that was coming and also being incredibly and gloriously explicit and, 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 and not discreet about <laughs> not only everything was happening, but all his friends that were dropping out like flies, most of the finding their Air Force careers in tatters because they discovered something that was actually wrong. Interestingly, without, I'll come back to the rock star, he himself had a bit of a secret because he'd actually smashed either his wrist or his ankle. It's not quite sure which. It's, It's still a bit uncertain which it was. Usually it's considered to be the wrist, but in fact, Tamara said it was the ankle in a bike accident when he was 15 years old classic Titov moment, doing something crazy, goes head over heels and he smashes the wrist or the ankle. It was set by the doctor at the time. This is exactly the kind of thing that the selecting doctors at the Moscow hospital that were checking to see which one of these men were fit enough of the many that went down there to be tested to be on the cosmonaut program. This is exactly the kind of thing they were looking for to kick them out. Incredibly, Titov managed to bluff his way through, or God knows what, they never found it. They never found that he had this kind of ankle or wrist that was misset or was had been broken in a really quite bad way. So they can't have been that good. <laughs> so he lies about all this stuff. Um, to, you know, he doesn't, he lies to his superiors about keeping Sturm when in fact he's telling everything to his wife. <laughs> and when he's flying in 1960, and he does all these crazy things like can't sleep properly, possibly faints, is sick, you know, experiences several orbits worth of, of serious nausea and disability, actually. His arrival back on Earth is another pure rock star moment. It's insane. I nearly swore then, but it is insane. <laughs> I think we talked about Yuri Gagarin's arrival, which we won't go into now, but it was the arrival where he ends up in a plowed field with two women who are planting potatoes and he tries to find a phone and all they can offer him is a horse and he's just travelled all the way around the planet. (laughs) And it's kind of crazy. Titov's is in some respects even crazier, but it's got a more of a punk kind of element to it. He also, they all landed off course at this point. He also landed off course in the same kind of, 
region of Russia, the Saratov region of Russia, where Gagarin landed, but not in the same place exactly where Gagarin landed. But when he was coming down by parachute, because he had to eject from his capsule in the last 20 odd thousand feet, was not possible to land inside the capsule at the time because it would be too heavy and the technology did not exist to do that. So he ejects from his capsule, he lands, and as he's coming down his parachute, he sees a train beneath him and he realizes that he is heading straight for the train. Okay, this is after 25 hours in space. And he desperately moves his parachute straps to try and avoid this oncoming train. He just literally gets past the train, which screeches to a halt. And everyone, all the passengers now looking out and seeing this man in an orange, literally falling out of the sky. <laughs> At which point, a woman driver who is actually driving along the road that is parallel to the railway line realizes she's been hearing on the radio that Titov has been in. So this must be the guy. And she's so excited that she actually loses control of her car and spins off the road and smashes into a tree. Oh my God. And Chitov has to go up to her and find his first aid kit that's supposed to be for himself in space and bandage her face because she's actually damaged her face because she hits the steering wheel with her face. This is how he arrives back on Earth. If Yuri Garin's arrival is comical at one level this is a kind of rock opera arrival <laughs> i mean it really is you've got a screeching train you've got thousands of passengers you've got a driver spinning off the road and hitting a tree and you've got this guy that's just come back from 25 hours and 17 and a bit orbits who is now using his first cosmonaut's first aid kit to bandage her face because she's hit the steering wheel that's how he arrives back anybody home Let's talk a little bit about what happened after he got back. Well, Titov, Titov was a bad boy. He was a bit of a bad boy. I mean, he was a, he was, he could be, I mean, he was outspoken. He was all those things he talked about. And actually he was, gosh, dare I say this. I mean, he was sort of all going to get attacked, you know, I mean, because it, there seems like this terrible contradiction, which of course there is between the loving husband who writes these beautiful letters to his pregnant wife and the guy that plays around. Okay. Because he did play around. and the fame that came to these people, starting with Yuri Gagarin, was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, we don't know who Titov is, perhaps these days so much, or it's it's a specialist thing. Uh, he was as famous for a while as Yuri Gagarin was. I mean, there was a parade as big as Gagarin's, a party in Moscow with hundreds of thousands of people, which I believe took place on August the 9th, 1961, mm-hmm. two days after he landed. You know, it was a huge event and it got to Tito's head. And I suspect the fame and the pressures of the fame, like it did with people like Buzz Aldrin, perhaps also the fact that he was the number two, which absolutely devastated him. And it really broke him in some respects, as I think you could say it did with Buzz Aldrin as well, who also Mm -hmm. had his own mental problems and mental health problems. So I think what happened with Titov is he he kind of went off the rails, actually. He'd always had a bit of a drink issue. Um, he That drink issue became worse. And he also loved driving very fast. So you've got fast driving, you've got drink, you've got women, 
And it starts to become a problem. It becomes a problem for the cosmonaut instructors. It becomes a problem for the Soviet government as well, because this guy is like Yuri Gagarin, and they travel together around the world, you know, promoting what they have done and Soviet superiority over the West and over America and all the rest of it. And yet there's all this kind of whoring and womanizing and drinking and driving. He is cautioned. And nevertheless, he's not very good at heeding those cautions. Another Titov trait. What happens? He has, I think he gets 10 drink driving offenses. Uh, at one point, he actually smashes into a bus when he's actually drunk. Um, it all gets a bit difficult. He's sent to America. Gagarin only went to America once when he went to the United Nations to address it. Titov goes on an American tour in 1962, which is a public relations disaster. And if anything, anything justifies the decision to put Yuri Gagarin as the number one cosmonaut over Titov, it was that tour. <laughs> it goes really badly on. He insults the Americans in every way he can. He says their skyscrapers are rubbish. He says the Washington Monument is a bit of a joke. He goes to the Museum of Modern Art in New York and ridicules the paintings there. He goes to the New York Stock Exchange and he's booed by all the traders on the <laughs> trading floor of the New York Stock. I mean, he's not popular and the American press don't like him. Curiously enough, the American astronauts, the Mercury 7, do. And he gets on terribly well with John Glenn. And John Glenn has an impromptu barbecue at his house and invites Titov, who's there with Tamara, who remembers this event pretty well. And Annie Glenn, who's John Glenn's wife, um, doesn't have any food in the house. So she has to get her neighbours to go and sort of bring steaks in for the barbecue. She sends the police motorcycle escort off to the local supermarket to actually buy peas and things like that to bring back. And meantime, John Glenn gets his barbecue going and he sets fire to it by mistake. <laughs> and, and Titov famously took off his jacket and the two men set out to actually put out the fire and then barbecue these incredibly burned steaks. And they actually got on really well. Um, Titov actually got on well with astronauts. You know, he got on well with Frank Borman later on, you know, the Apollo Eka. He got on well with them. But the American press, they loathed him. They really did. So he had problems there. Um, and I should just say, because I'm banging on, but just on this rock star point, it went very dark for Titov in 1964. There was a very dark incident where he... I think he he was, it, there was a woman passenger in his car who was, I think, a hitchhiker. And the story goes, and none of it's completely verified, but the story goes that he was drunk, that he hit something in the road, that there was a terrible accident, mm -hmm. that he, and we don't quite know the details of this, and one has to be careful here, but that he somehow crawled out of the wreckage of the car and stumbled off and somehow got a taxi somewhere and went home and went to bed thinking that the woman who was next to him was not badly injured and just somehow walked away. In fact, she was very badly injured. She was picked up by an ambulance. She went into hospital and she died that night. I didn't know this. Wow. 
So there is this very, I mean, you know, there are all kinds of questions about whether this really happened or not. And one has to put all of this with several pinches of salt, but this is where the rumor mills were grinding. And the, the, the story is, and I wouldn't stand up in a court of law and back this up, but the story is that Titov was, I mean, would have lost everything, would have been kicked out of the cosmos. This was, this was a major disgrace. But Kamanin, who was the head of cosmonaut training, realized that what was at stake here was the reputation of the Soviet Union. It was the reputation of everything. I mean, if their number two cosmonaut was in that, was this proved to be true and that he'd done a kind of hit and run, essentially, and yeah. somebody had died, that was too much to take on board. It really was, especially coming after this, you know, a year or two after this disastrous American tour. Yeah. And the whole thing was hushed up. That is what is said to have happened. Would I stand up and swear an oath that that's what actually did happen? No, I would not. Tamara, his wife, would say, said none of this happened. It was all total lies. So one has to be careful how one plays this. But it's a, there's a very strong indication that something very murky took place and was very much covered up at the time. And it was better to cover it up than let it out into the open. But what it did do was it changed definitely everything for Titov. He just cleaned up his act from that point on. There could be no more of this. There could be no more of this whoring, drinking, drink driving, and ultimately perhaps even a case, a fatality case as well, where somebody actually died as a result of something going very wrong. So it all had to be cleaned up and he did radically clean up his act. I mean, it's the, it's the rock star arc. You either die, don't you? Or you become Paul McCartney. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he did clean his act up. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about maybe his later later life and what he did, you know, after, yeah, sure. after that? Obviously, he didn't fly again, but he did, you know, he did still work in uh, aerospace. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, he, he, well, he didn't fly in space because, like Yuri Gagarin, they could not risk putting this very famous, very important man in space again, which was a tragedy for him because he wanted to go to the moon and he wanted to be part of the Soviet lunar program, which obviously fell apart, but he his passion was to go to the moon. And like all of the cosmonauts, I mean, 20 of them had been selected originally. They were thinking very big. They were thinking about space stations. They were thinking about colonies on the moon. They were thinking mm. about journeys to Mars. It was all there in Sergei Korolev's, the head of the space programs, um, kind of schedule in the late 1950s. The whole thing was sort of mapped out. And that's what he wanted to do, but he didn't go to space. And actually, after Yuri Gagarin was killed in this mysterious plane crash in a MiG jet trainer in 1968, Titov was not allowed to fly either. Wow. Um, so he yep. was stopped from flying, which was tragic for him because one of the things that he did um, in the mid 1960s before that happened was he started uh, running a jet training school, basically, uh, in Chkalovsky, which is the big military training base. And he was doing that because he was developing or working on the development of a really advanced rocket plane called Spiral. And the thing about Spiral was it's a bit like Richard Branson's Virgin Galactica. It was sort of a, a plane that would be attached to another plane, as I can understand it, that would be dropped 
and then would fly off into space and then would land on its own. I mean, it's really advanced technology for the 1960s. And Titov was one of its kind of one of the people who was running that program. And he was he was he was so he's back into flying in the 60s because you needed pilots that could fly this thing, just as you do with Virgin Galactica. So you need Spaceship Two. So you needed people like that. And that was what he was doing. Then Gagarin has his crash in 1968 and Titov has stopped from flying. So there's not just not flying in space. There's not even flying. There's nothing. This is the number two cosmonaut who's sort of getting his act together and then he loses another opportunity. And it's very hard for him. But this time, instead of crashing back into kind of drink and women and all of that sort of stuff, he doesn't. He stays in the space program for a while, I think until 1972, um, my understanding is. And then he's kind of associated with, with space until the 1990s. And then in the 1990s, when the Soviet Union collapses, he actually stands for the Duma, which is the Russian parliament. I mean, he has a really interesting career. But in the year 2000, at the age of 65, he dies. He's actually found dead in his sauna in his apartment. Um, and he's probably had been there for about 24 hours before he was discovered. Oh. Um, and his his daughter actually told me about this as well. And 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 he was young. I mean, he was relatively young. He was 65 years old in the year 2000. He had a massive funeral, but unlike Gagarin, who was buried in the wall of the Kremlin, he was not buried, which is the place of honor. He was not buried in the wall of the Kremlin. He was buried, buried in a private cemetery so that even in death, the consequences of that decision that was made on April the 9th, 1961, which was Gagarin, you're first, Titov, you're his backup and you're second. The consequence of that decision even play out into the place where they lie at rest mm. after death to this day. Wow. Wow. I just got chills hearing that because that it's mm. sad, you know? Yeah. I, it is. It is sad. It is sad. And it was, it was, it was, I mean, he had to live all his life for that question. I say all his life, all his life after 1961 when he was only, what, 25 years old. Yeah, he had to kid. live with that question. You know, why were you second? How do you feel about being the number two? When the decision was made in 1961 on April the 9th by Kamanin, who actually didn't make the final, well, he just did make the final decision, but when he called these two young men, Yuri Gagarin and, and German Titov, into his office to tell them, in Kazakhstan at the Cosmodrome three days before the first human flight in space and told them that Yuri Gagarin would be first and German Titov would be second. It was devastating for Titov. He didn't show it there straight away. Kaman in his diary comes up with this incredible understatement. He says, Titov expressed a slight annoyance, is what he says. <laughs> he was devastated. I mean, Tamara told me that. It destroyed, it was not destroyed him, but it devastated him. And he was yeah. hoping and praying all the time that, that something would go wrong for Yuri Gagarin between April the 9th and 9.07 yeah. on April the 12th, which was the date of the flight. He had to go through the humiliation of being Yuri Gagarin's backup 
wearing the spacesuit, getting dressed, doing all those things in case he's required. They even had to sleep in the same room in this little cottage near the launch pad the night before. You know, and I think I said, I don't remember in the last one we, in the last conversation we had, that secret strain gauges were actually placed underneath the mattresses of both of these men to see how much they moved at night. And had Gagarin moved more than Titov, it is still possible that we'd be talking about Titov as the first human in space and not Yuri Gagarin. And all the way up to the launch pad, he was hoping and he was praying that maybe there'd be a leak in Yuri Gagarin's spacesuit. Maybe he'd get ill. Maybe he would fail a physical. Maybe he'd go crazy. Maybe, 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 maybe. And the thoughts were torturing him until finally it got to the point when the word came down half an hour, 45 minutes before launch that Titov, it's time to take your space suit off. And I interviewed the woman who helped take that space suit off. <laughs> In the bus, she helped him remove his visor, faceplate, helmet, and then take off the outer garments of his spacesuit at the back of the bus near the launch pad. And she said, and she said, I did it like a mother to a child. That's how she describes it and described it to me. And she said he was devastated. I mean, that's actually the word she used, beyond disappointment. He knew that his chance, his moment for immortality mortality that door that gate had closed Woo! that is just cinematic right there that that it's just it's like watching a movie mm, yeah. yeah well let's say there is a movie <laughs> yeah. yeah oh my god i would be in the front row because that would be incredible i would that would be incredible i would love to see some german and yuri yeah. just tension you yeah know? and of course the thing is emily is that they were great friends that's yes. the thing that makes it even more difficult. You know, I mean, they, would, they were there and, 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 and Gagarin had been an amazing support and friend to German Titov when he lost his son mm. a few months previously. And that obviously makes that relationship richer and more complex. And the competition between them is infused with love as well. I mean, actually, Titov was gracious and said they chose the right guy. Yeah. Because he had something, Yuri, that I did not have. He knew how to touch people. He knew how to reach people. He had that gift. And I didn't, which mm. was incredibly yeah. moving and honest of him to say, I think. Yeah, he, I, I, th- I read a translated quote and he was like, they were right to select Yuri because I could easily say something and offend somebody. I was like, oh, that's so sad. It's, oh and it's God. true. It's true. He it said, it. I, I, quote it, I quote it in Beyond in my book. It's there. He, he says actually just that, which I think has... I mean, there is um, some humility in that, which I think is actually very moving. So he's a sort of a complex, difficult, spiky, feisty, fascinating, irritating, amazing, (laughs) shocking, dreadful, but rather wonderful and actually ultimately rather tragic figure in the end, um, who deserves a whole book of his own. And it's wonderful that we're having this conversation and we're able to kind of, you know, discuss him in some respects, criticize him, but also to celebrate too. Cause I think that that's, um, that's important to do. Okay. We need a Titov book next. <laughs> <laughs> the issue is that he's so unknown. You put a Titov book on the shelf. People wouldn't pick it up. Nobody cares about number two. I mean, this is what, I mean, I think I quote this in the book too. I, I actually, I certainly do. The within, 
half an hour of him coming out of that meeting on April the 9th. Um, Popovich, who was one of the other cosmonauts who actually went up on a later flight, said to him, look, you know, you're going up as number two, you know, you're going to space, what's your big problem? And I wonder if I think I might have quoted this last time, I don't know, but he said, Titov said to Popovich, he said, who discovered America? And Popovich said Christopher Columbus, and he said he was the second person to discover America, and Popovich said, I don't know, and Titov said, that is entirely my point, that's the point. Yeah, I have this extraordinary 35 millimeter footage that was shot the two days before the flight, Yuri Gagarin's flight, on April the 10th, 1961. They had all these cameramen in there because they knew this was building up to a really important event. And they had all these celebrations that took place, including one that takes place in this, what they call a gazebo in Kazakhstan. It was this huge sort of very beautiful kind of wooden shelter right by the river in the Cosmodrome, in the middle of the desert. And they're all drinking champagne and all these bemedaled soldiers, generals, are making speeches and toasts to Yuri Gagarin and toasting him on his upcoming flight. And Korolev stands up. It's just incredible. There's somebody actually, you know, pulls a cork on a bottle of champagne. It sprays all over his uniform. And I mean, this is stuff, it's, it's all original, uncut stuff. Literally, it was shot in the camera, in colour, very good quality colour. And at one point, as I say in my book, the cameraman focuses on Titov while all this is going on about Yuri this and Gagarin that and da-da-da-da and da-da, all this celebration and champagne and toast after toast, very Russian. And Titov is in his uniform looking, as you say, possibly handsome. And there he is in his uniform and he is staring into the distance. He is lost. He, you just see it in his eyes. He's sort of just... He's just, he's taking in the reality of what would be the rest of his life. That is what he is doing. And it is terribly moving. I mean, as a documentary filmmaker myself, it's, it, the guy gets the shot because what you do is don't focus on Yuri Gagarin. You focus on Titov. You focus on that face and you read everything, all of the pain and, in a sense, loss in that face, in those moments. It's like when you watch the Oscars. It's always, <laughs> it's always more, more fascinating looking at the face of the, of the loser. Of the loser. The person who didn't get it. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly so. So, you know, and that's, and that's what it is. It's very, very, it was a, a kind of a very moving experience for him to have to go through all of that. Um, but, you know, uh, what was incredible talking to Tamara in her apartment in, in Moscow, for all the... Oh, the bad things, and they were bad things, that happened afterwards, unquestionably. The sense of partnership and love, actually, that she felt for this man, and admiration, actually, for what he had achieved, and empathy for what he had missed, were very palpable. You can judge that, you could say, she's a silly woman, why? Actually, I found that profoundly moving, sitting there with very Russian, pastries and cakes at this table with her actually lovely daughter who's about my age who was sitting uh, next to her, you know, and, and also talking about memories of her dad. I and mean, he seems like he was a really great dad actually. And they missed him hugely. Yeah. 
They really did. It was very moving, actually. It was moving to hear that, that those connections and that love actually did manage to survive all of that trauma and pain. Yeah, and I think that's a really good place to wrap this up. But thank you so much for coming back and talking to us about Titov. This story is fascinating, and I'm really glad we've done this uh, and, and spent a bit of time. I'm learning a hell of a lot, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will as well. And of course, there's so much more in your book about all of this. So definitely, uh, people should go and check that out. I'm so pleased that we're doing this man, Titov, because he does deserve his place in history. I'm absolutely full of that. And he's a really interesting man to, to, to explore and to study. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank absolutely. you very much for joining us. Thank and, you so uh, much. This was yeah, amazing. Well, I hope, I'm sure we'll, we'll find a reason to have you back again because uh, <laughs> it's, always, it's always a lot of fun. I, I could, really could do this for hours. That's great. Well, thank you very much for having thank me. Thank you That's so fun. much. <laughs> Well, Emily, how about that? I'm, I'm kind of out of breath <laughs> just from listening. <laughs> yeah, that was just incredible. Like that was, um, uh, I think I said in the interview, I, I it was like cinematic. Like it, it, it was more like a movie than like you felt like you were watching a movie of a uh, Titov's life. And I, I thought uh, I wrote an article years ago, like five years ago, I think, about Titov for uh, Ars Technica. Uh, it's still live. I think it's called the uh, car crashes, cussing and carousing or something <laughs> because, um, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a really I, I would say it's a work of beauty because he just got in so much trouble. But it, it, ultimately, it's a touching piece. But um, I thought I knew everything about Titov and I did not. I found out a lot of stuff I did not know today. Yeah, me too. And and it goes to show that the level of research that Stephen uh, undertook to write the book beyond i mean it's just another level isn't it the, the the privilege he had with some of the access he had to some of the things incredible yeah the fact that he was able to talk to um tamara uh titov's wife you know and get a better picture of what kind of person he was and you know how the the flight order affected him you know and the letters you know, I, I was watching your face when he was talking about the oh fact my that he God. had these letters. Your face was like, what? You have access to this stuff? I, give it to me now. I was flipping out. Like, there's so many moments during that interview where my jaw was on the floor because I was like, I did not know this even existed. Um, the film footage of him, you know, with at the uh, party yeah. did not know. The world of Soviet spaceflight, probably in the United Kingdom as well, but in the United States has been so close to us, like, historically. So whenever I find out stuff like that, there's letters and there's there's actual evidence of this stuff. It's just like, ooh. <laughs> I, I just, yeah. it's so awesome. And I'm glad that Stephen covered the darker side there of Titov as well. I mean, he used the word trauma. It actually all feels quite relevant even now. You know, just... Look what's going on in the Olympics, Emily. I've been watching so much Olympics. I, I really love it. Anyway, you look at the, uh, the what these people go through, these Olympians go through, they they build up for four or five years as it has been to, to a single solitary event and it either goes really well or it goes 
really badly or, or or somewhere in the middle, but they still don't win or whatever it is. Like, but then you've either got to go home with the knowledge that it went really well, and what do you do after you've done the thing that you've been trying to do and it went well, or you've got to go home knowing that it didn't go well. And there's got to be some post-traumatic or post-event downtime or downturn and how do you deal with that and certainly i know i know from my, my experience of, of touring or, or or doing bigger projects recording and stuff like that after you have these big highs you do have these these incredible lows and how you deal with that and uh and i can't imagine there was much support for anyone back there for how exactly. like, or any guidebook on how to deal with these things you know it's it's um, it's something that we still, as humans, haven't necessarily got to grips with, is it? Yeah, exactly. You know, um, I think there was obviously a part of him that hoped, you know, hey, I'll be the first one, you know, and I'll be, I'll have that level of immortality. He didn't get that. He did the second, you know, he did the second flight. But, um, you know, I, I think sort of his frustration at not being first maybe came out in his behavior. And, you know, after that you know, after you break a bunch of records, what do you do after that? You know exactly, and and you know one of one of those records stood until just two weeks ago. You yeah. know, he was the youngest person in space. You and I did not see that coming that this year that was going to be gone. You know, even even Haley Arsenal, who was g- going to be the youngest American in space, she's still f- a few years older than him. Yeah, uh, and we were like, she's young. Alas, that's the world we now live in. Yeah, now it's an 18-year-old, you know, which is crazy to me because, you know, I, I look at pictures of Titov back then when he was, you know, going to space and he looks very young. He's handsome, but he looks very young. You know, you just think of it in that context like this was a kid, you know, <laughs> or this was somebody who yeah. was, you know, maybe not mature, maybe didn't know how the world worked exactly. Yeah. So I had one other thought and it Maybe a little bit of an indication of my sense of humor and read into this what you will. But he did die young, 65. We would say that he died young. But dying in a sauna is also kind of a rock style thing to yes, do, isn't it? it is. I mean, it wasn't John Entwistle with Las Vegas cocaine and all the other or stuff Keith going Moon on there. Or something there, like but that. But still, in a sauna. Almost just the way he planned it. Like, you know, with the yeah. bang. <laughs> he was definitely, yeah. to me, like the the rock star of early cosmonauts because he was just, yeah, he had the style. He was stylish. You know, he was, he was handsome and he just was reckless. So yeah. Absolutely. But Stephen didn't disappoint there at all. A great interview. Absolutely loved hearing him talk again. And uh, the full unedited version of that interview is up in video form on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash space and things. And you can find links to Stephen's social media in our show notes, which are, either in your podcast provider uh, or on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com. But, you know, his book, you just just go on his website, stephenwalkerbeyond.com, and uh, you've got all the information there. I mean, that book is amazing. Yes. I said it before when we had him on before. It's an incredible book. It, it, it did really well. It's really good. Lo- loads of incredible reviews. This isn't just us saying that because he's come on the show. It, people bought this and people have read it and it's incredible. So yeah. and you hear it. him talk. He can tell a story, this guy. So uh, if you haven't got that book yet, we've given you two reasons now, two episodes worth of reasons why you should potentially get that book yeah. in, your, in your library. Yeah, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. Get it's it. really good. <laughs> hey, congratulations. This is real good. 
Okay, and so on to this week's news. Before we get to some pretty dramatic stuff, an, an update on the launches we've had this week. So last Thursday, the 29th of July, the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation launched a Long March 2D rocket carrying into orbit a stereotopographic mapping satellite. Later that day, Rocket Lab launched an electron rocket from New Zealand, placing experimental spacecraft for the United States Air Force into orbit on a mission called It's a Little Chilly Up Here. <laughs> I just love the way they name their missions at Rocket Lab. Anyway, this was their first launch since the launch failure they had in May, so it's great to see that they're back in business. Uh, on Friday the 30th of July, Ariane Space launched some communication satellites up into orbit on the Ariane 5 rocket from French Guiana. And this morning, as we record on Tuesday the 3rd of August, iSpace, which was the first private Chinese company to reach orbit, well, they had a launch failure, in fact, of its Hyperbola 1 rocket. It's, it's the second failure in a row after that first successful flight. So let's hope that they can figure out what's been going wrong there. And if you listen to last week's podcast, then you might remember Dave talking about the new Russian module, which was launched and was due to dock uh, with the International Space Station on Thursday. Well, despite the difficulties uh, getting into orbit that Dave mentioned last week, it did dock, but there was definitely some drama. About three hours after the module docked, thrusters on the module decided to start inadvertently firing, and as a result, the station temporarily lost attitude control. NASA spokesperson Rob Navias uh, made a statement saying that the astronauts on board were never any, in any danger, but also said that the station tilted 45 degrees from its proper orientation and that it was out of control for 47 minutes. However, a tweet from NASA flight director Zebulon Scoville paints a slightly different picture. He said, quote, Lead MLM flight director Greg Whitney and I split the shift today. Never I ever won been prouder of the team that sits in MCC and lives on at Space Station. Two, had to declare a spacecraft emergency until now. And three, been so happy to see all solar arrays and radiators still attached. Oof. That's crazy, isn't it? That is crazy. So my understanding is they just had to let these thrusters burn until all the propellant was used. Yeah, that's not really good. That's not good. That's not good at all, is it? That scared the hell out of me. Yeah. I hate being critical of the Russian space program, especially because today's show is about the Russian space program. You know, it's about yeah. uh, Titov and he and his, you know, his mission. And that mission was the Russians have done all the first. People say, well, they didn't land on the moon, but they had the first human in space. They had the first woman in space. They had the first long duration flight, which was Titov, really. They've done so many amazing things in spaceflight. They've had the first space station. So I hate to sound too critical of them, but um, it's been a rough few years for Russians in space. There have been a lot of issues, and this is just the latest of it. So I'm hoping <laughs> I'm hoping this maybe uh, this kind of incident on this big of a scale can maybe force some changes. That's all I got to say. Absolutely now on the head. You know, it's just such a shame to to see these these things happen. I mean, this was supposed to launch, as I said last week, this was supposed to launch years ago, 2007, I think. Yeah. So something's been going wrong from the very beginning with that. And, you know, let's hope there's no more problems with it. They've, they've announced that uh, well, the, the Russians have claimed that it was a software error that caused the, the thrusters to fire. <laughs> Jeez. 
So, okay, cool, these things happen, but is it fixed? <laughs> what happens now? The, you know, there was, the propellant was supposed to be there so that those thrusters could be used to to put the, the, the space station into different uh, orbital paths when, when yeah. required. That was part of the, the, the point of this module. Does that mean that's now inoperational? Uh, yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of questions still unanswered for me about this, and hopefully they'll make amends. I can't believe this wasn't a bigger story as it was going on. NASA is so keen to downplay it. I agree. But I guess I guess part of that is because NASA just can't be seen to put any foot wrong, even though it wasn't their fault. They can't, because it's taxpayer funded and they're under such scrutiny all the time. But I just wish they'd been more honest. Uh, clearly, this was a scary scenario. Yeah, it was a spacecraft emergency, which is pretty not great. You know, not not something yeah. desirable. And I was kind of disappointed they just didn't put it out there that like, hey, this was an emergency. And instead, you know, the flight controller or the flight directors um, said something. And I'm like, I hope they're not being consequenced for saying anything. Yeah. I, well, it hasn't been deleted, which would suggest that they okay. haven't been consequenced for saying something. Because I would have think if if, <clears throat> if there was issues with that, it, that would have happened. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, you're right. It is, you know. We do as taxpayers and, you know, fund the International Space Station to a degree. And it's like, I think we have a right to know what's going on with it, you know, and absolutely, you know, I, I, you know, and if there is an emergency on it and I just appreciate the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it sucks, even if it's like, yo, they're in trouble, they all got to come home or something. It's like, OK, bring them home then, you know, but it's like I'd rather just hear what actually happened. So. At the beginning, when they initially said, you know, no one was in danger, it wasn't a sort of they downplayed it. I was like, it was worse than that. I, I, yeah. I had a feeling like, OK, there's some downplaying going on, you know, I think partially, you know, probably to protect the international partnership as well, because I well, I, that's what I think. That's what I think's happened there as well. I, I agree. You know, th things are so fragile at the moment between United States and Russia and NASA has have tried really hard to be that diplomatic intermediary between the the two in terms of keeping the space program going because actually it's kind of essential that the two are working together well yeah for that station to exist yeah it, it has to happen lives are at stake and years of research and people's hard work is at stake this is a huge project as we spoke about before but I think i also understand when a space station is out of control you can bet your life people will capitalize that with clickbaity titles and all that kind of stuff but actually if it's real we want to know about it yeah it's a big government funded yeah multinational project tell yeah. us about it it's tell us what's going on yeah i agree but it to me it also feels like they've missed out on a pr opportunity you know at the end of the day the crew are safe uh, but if you told people what had happened and shown the emergency side of it, then this story could have helped reach more people uh, and let them know that the space station is there and it's still working and people are on it and you've got a vested interest in it. And it's difficult. And it would be the perfect story yeah. that was kind of required right now just to remind everyone, look, yes, we've got people coming up in commercial flight now. Yeah. But space flight's still dangerous. And things when things go wrong, it goes really wrong. Yeah, you know, and and I think it, you know we've not had 
fantastic. We've not had any big bad accidents that haven't that have resulted in fatalities for a number of years now. But it's still a really dangerous place. It's still a reality, yeah. And space is yeah. a foreign environment. It's not an environment humans can live in, you know, without a spacesuit. So absolutely, you know, it's yeah. I, I totally agree with you. And yeah, and 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 I do all I want to add one more thing before you move on. You know, um everybody I've talked to, astronauts at NASA that you know, who've worked with Russians, they they always say, you know, I know things aren't good with us on Earth, uh, you know, politically, but in space we get along great. You know, so yeah. I do want to make that clear. I'm not trying to bag on the Russians here at all, you know. No. And um I'm not trying to, you know, dis I don't it's not the cosmonauts. It's probably the people way above them. That's all I have to say. No, absolutely. It's not them. And, and, and as we talked about in the in the interview earlier, you know, Titov got on well with the astronauts, and we know even right the way back then, the the cosmonauts and the astronauts, and it's in Mike Collins' yep. book and and all those kind of things. They all talk about how actually they got on really well with the cosmonauts. Yeah. They're just pilots, you know. They're they're yeah. They were pilots, and they all got they had that in common, and they vibed really well with each other. It's just the people. Yeah up higher who you know they didn't like certain things so yeah absolutely yeah so anyway as a result of these problems the planned launch which i spoke about last week of the boeing starliner spacecraft which was due to go to the station got scrubbed on friday and it was actually supposed to launch today but it's been scrubbed again due to some other technical problems now uh as i said I talked about this last week so i'm not going to repeat all the details of this mission and why it's important but hopefully next week we'll have some positive news to report about that uh, and hopefully we'll have a crewed mission of of starliner before the end of the year as well and finally despite jeff bezos agreeing to pay for the rest of the research himself Blue Origin and Dynetics protest of the Artemis program lunar lander contract being awarded to SpaceX has failed. The statement from the U.S. Government Accountability Office said, As soon as possible, NASA will provide an update on the way ahead for Artemis, the human landing system, and humanity's return to the moon. However, it didn't give any details about this announcement, so maybe this isn't the last we've heard of this. Yeah, what Space Jam is dead. Flight <laughs> crew, OTC, close and lock your visors, initiate O2 flow. Right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for all the support. Episode 50 next week. Oh, my God. 50. Can't quite believe Almost it. Almost a year. Crazy. So please do continue with sharing our podcast with your friends or wherever you think it might be liked. Hopefully, we'll have a marketing budget by show 100, <laughs> but right now, we really do just rely on you. Yes, many thanks, and we hope that you've enjoyed learning about Gehrman Titov. He really is one of the best characters in our rich history of space flight. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. Space and Things has been brought to you by... And Things Productions.